in the New Testament, I think what we're doing right now is almost church, buddy. I think making this podcast is church. And I could take the New Testament and show you how this is church way quicker than I could show you how going down to First Baptist Church on Sunday morning with some stained glass windows that they could have fed a thousand poor people with in less privileged areas. This is the cross that I bear. It's that I have this faith that is just completely incompatible with anyone. All of my buddies in the music industry, all of my buddies that are artists, are mostly like agnostic or atheist or something like that, and they think I'm nuts. Then all my friends that are, they believe in some form of Christianity, they all think I'm horrible, you know? The boys are home from their first music recording excursion together. Now they wait for producer Sean Byrne to mix and master the Coots duo album in Nashville. In the meantime, as you can hear, the two have countless hours to discuss all things serpent handling, to download their shared experiences relating to their recent trip as they make plans for new and upcoming adventures. I was going to tell you, dude, I'm now the proud owner of Old Lemonhead. What? Yeah, dude. He died this morning. What happened? I don't know, Cody said that his granddaddy's really upset about it. Mr. Coots is very upset, but he said uh, he put it in the freezer and he's holding it for me. There's there's now two rattlesnakes up there waiting for me. But I'm going to go get them. I'm probably going to go this weekend. But uh, Cody said, he said, I got good news and bad news. And I said, well, what is it hit me? He's like, well, old Lemonhead died. And I said, Cody, I, there ain't no bad news to me. Cody had told me when we were recording his record, he bought Old Lemonhead. That's the one that we took pictures with at his session and sat in the church with us the whole time we were recording the record. Cody told me he thought that Old Lemonhead was going to bite and kill somebody before he died. Remember when he said that? Yep, I heard him say that. You know, he really believed that 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 snake was going to bite and kill somebody because he was mean. I think there was four or five snake handlers that owned that thing over its lifetime. And uh, every one of the snake handlers were scared to death of that one. And they all felt like it was going to bite and kill somebody. It came out of the mountains around Harlan, Kentucky. And basically, somebody called it wild. I think Cody actually may have called it wild. I'm going to find out the whole history on it. I'll probably have the whole story of that snake. Here's what I hope happens. I hope that old Lemonhead is big enough to make a guitar strap out of Dude, I cannot believe. Probably what I'll do is on the inside of that strap, on the leather underneath the snake skin, I'm going to have the whole story of that snake put on the inside of that leather strap. Cody said it was handled on several Easter's and New Year's Eve's, and it's the one they brought out for special occasions, you know. I mean, he's a looker, son. The thing was massive, and it's yellow. The reason I'm glad he's dead is because Cody had me convinced that he was going to kill somebody. And I was just praying to God it wasn't somebody that I know, you know? Abe, you were a preacher for a long time. You know the Bible way better than I do. It's got to say somewhere in there in the Bible that it's better to give than receive. If that's the case, if you really want to bless yourself, you ought to make that old Lemonhead guitar strap for me. (laughs) (laughs) The old Lemonhead is going to be the strap, buddy. 
I cannot believe you're going to have a guitar <laughs> strap made out of lemon head. Dude, that'll be the guitar strap to end all guitar straps. Put that story in the inside of it. That way, that story, that guitar strap will be there forever. And it'll be beautiful, too, because that was a beautiful snake. It had a beautiful uh, color, you know. It wasn't just a black or gray. It had some yellows and greens in it, you know. Of course, after they're dead, I don't know if that stuff stays the same. Don't really know how that works. I've never fooled with no snake before, but I know I'm proud to have that one, though, because there ain't no snake in this whole world that means anything to me except that one. <laughs> <laughs> that was there for the recording of the record, man. Oh, it'll be in pictures on that record. Somewhere on that record packaging, I have a good close-up of old Lemonhead from that day. He'll be there, and uh, and now he will live in my guitar, on my guitar. Dude, you done leveled up, man. We done talked about him, so there you go. There's you some more fodder for the podcast. While they wait for the mixes, one day, Farrell receives a large cardboard box in the mail. Yes. On the top, it's a colorful sticker, a very familiar Southern folk art logo that betrays its sender. The sticker says, Alabama Astronaut. The box is filled with every book on the serpent handling faith. Hmm. It's Abe nudging Farrell to learn all he can about the subject for the sake of the podcast. Farrell dives in, learning first and foremost about the three prominent families in this particular branch of the serpent handling faith, and one legendary serpent handling church situated in a tiny little town in West Virginia called Jolo. Barbara Elkins, the grandmotherly matriarch of the family, cradled a timber rattler on the cover of the first book Farrell saw when he opened Abe's box of serpent-handling books. It was a timber rattler as thick around as a Louisville slugger. Miss Elkins had a son named Dewey Chafin, widely known as the most daring serpent-handler of all time. Dewey was bitten over 120 times and had a signature move of lifting multiple venomous snakes to the heavens, both hands full of them gripped by fingers stiff and riddled from years of snakebite injuries. Somehow, even still, he played rhythm guitar on what's now known as that Jolo sound on his Fender guitar. We tell you about Jolo here because the music at Jolo provided, some say, some of the most legendary performances ever. Abe often laments in unpublished interviews with Farrell the unfortunate fact that nobody ever thought to record those spirited performances outside of the standard old wobbly cheap VHS recordings that a few congregants made during their homecomings and special services. Jolo's peak and heyday cannot be relived, unfortunately, but its sound does live on, pulsating forth through time in the form of jangly, soulful riffs from Andrew Hamlin's Telecaster guitar. Oh, perfect love, it'll pass out fear. Oh, bring them serpents on over here. Little David, play on your pot. As they pursue a full congregational recording with Andrew Hamblin and his army of multi-instrumentalist serpent handlers who play every song as if it literally might be their last, a recording conducted professionally with isolated microphones and top-of-the-line recording equipment, a dedicated full church recording of a serpent-handling congregation for the very first time ever. Abe and Farrell quickly realize that a long-lost church from Jolo, West Virginia, adds a whole new layer of mystery and revelation to this quest. Satan, your kingdom must come down. 
this is not a podcast about religion. I've only been home a day and a half. I'm already to go back, you know? It's like, man, I wish it wasn't uh, eight hours away. <laughs> it is not a podcast about the five signs of Mark 16, of handling serpents, drinking poisonous substances, or other acts of great faith. I know this has been painful for you financially. Every artist, every story about artists and every artist you know right now is complaining. You know, now we have this story of how two artists went out and made the work of their lives during a time when everyone else was complaining about how you couldn't do anything. We should be making a podcast right now about how unfair the lockdowns were and how people in our industry are so vital that we get overlooked. We are actually what makes people want to live, and yet here we are, and we can't figure out a way to live our dreams. I mean, that's what everybody's talking about right now, you know? The only constant that exists in this world that you and I live in is change. A pandemic was just another change. It was some virus that starts eating people. And uh, so you either find a way around it or you sit around and be one of the victims, man. You know, it's like you want to be a victim or do you want to change with the world? And our story is one where two guys changed. We've never done this. We, neither one of us have ever done this, right? I've went to church before and you've podcasted before, but not in this kind of way. This is a podcast about songs. Songs of them that believe the signs, that have never before taken their rightful place on the shelves of Americana. And perhaps that's because they are songs about the five signs of Mark 16, of handling serpents, drinking poisonous substances, and other acts of great faith. This is the story of a preacher turned songwriter, folk artist, and song catcher, Abe Partridge, who, during a pandemic, went to be around art that was authentic, real, and moving. This is what I found. That, to me, is the most authentic, real, and moving art I've ever experienced. Along with his podcasting friend, Farrell, they captured field recordings for today's episode at the Free Pentecostal House of Prayer in Gray, Kentucky. Other field recordings you'll hear were captured at the famed The Church of the Lord Jesus with Signs Following in Jolo, West Virginia. This is Alabama Astronaut, hosted by Farrell Gibbs. I would like to record with Andrew and Taylor, just like we did with Cody and Cassie. They're great musicians, and Andrew can play a guitar with, he can keep up with about anybody i ever seen. Banjo, too. And uh, Taylor has got a voice and a very interesting bass style. I mean, you can tell she's completely self-taught, and she uses like two fingers, but she puts them together, and her hand moves up and down that bass fretboard. She's just amazing in the way she plays. She plays the drums, she plays the piano, and her voice is like a trumpet or like a trombone. She's got this certain vibrato that just, I mean, I don't even think she really would even need a microphone. Yeah, I would love to make a record with them. Well, let's go get it. I heard you ask him about it the other night when we were sitting in your van after you gave Cody your bass, after the whole now famous tying you up with a guitar strap session. Where do we stand? I had reached out to Andrew via Facebook Messenger. Andrew and Taylor, they share a Facebook account. I told them that basically the same thing. I'd like to make a record for them. I'd like to get two or three songs if they knew some, which of course I knew they did, about the signs of Mark 16. What exactly did you say in the message, and when did you send it? 
I wrote him on February the 3rd at 6.05. Hey, I wanted to thank y'all for making me feel so welcome. You mentioned the other night that you would like to have a copy of the recordings I made on my handheld recorder. Here they are. People look at a serpent by like it's the most horriblest thing ever happened on the face here, man. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. I can't read nowhere in that book where it said they shall not fight. That's right. All the time I read where it said they shall take up. So. That's right. I can read that book where that they wouldn't be charmed and they shout at you. And I can also read where everything happens for a reason. You say, well, I'll come play the guitar for you. I know how to play the guitar. Huh? Say, well, I'll come play the piano for you. I, I beat on the piano. Say, well, you've got to have good music to get in. No, uh, I rejoice because he lives in me. I don't rejoice because that guitar. I like my guitar. There was a sound that took over this place. Brother Abraham and Brother Farrell back there, they come all the way from Alabama. There was a different sound got in this whole building. Yeah. Now, can you vouch for that? Yeah. Never been around him to been up here for me. There's a completely different sound from all of this building. And I would love to bring up some better equipment in the future and make some professional quality recordings of a service sometime if y'all would be interested. Also, if y'all would be interested, I'm thinking about coming up in a couple of weeks and we could record y'all like we did Cody and Cassie. At 10.37 that night, he said, Brother, we appreciate you, and thank you so much for sending these. I'll definitely let you know about bringing up the equipment to record the audio of a service, and honestly, I'd love to have a CD of Taylor and I. Mostly Taylor, LOL. She's the singer. I'm the screamer. <laughs> I've always wanted to make a CD, but you know how pricey a professional grade one is. Cody has talked highly of you, and what little we've been around you, we have come to trust you also. That's something we have a hard time doing, considering all that's happened through the years. We believe God has placed you in our lives for a reason, to help and bless each other. Things don't just happen, and folk don't come into each other's lives for no reason. Hopefully we'll talk more soon and love your paintings also. God bless you, brother, and thank you for being a friend to my little brother. He definitely thinks the world of you, and we can see why. Love you, and be safe. Can't wait to see you again. He went and checked out your art. That's cool. Well, it sounds like you have done it, Abe. That is awesome. Just let me know when he writes back and gives you a date, and we'll pack the car and go up there and get it. You know, at the beginning of all this, we talked a lot about the Lomaxes. You had listened to all of their field recordings on the Library of Congress website and their Kentucky website. And so we talked a lot about Alan Lomax and the whole idea that he nor anyone like him ever thought to document this serpent handling music. You know, now we're back from this trip and we have the Coots duo record and we are patting ourselves on the back for being the first two people to ever make a recording dedicated to capturing these songs in full. There are a million VHS recordings out there of these songs being played in a service, but there's always preaching on top of it and crowd noises. The recordings of the songs were incidental and not primary. Are we absolutely positive? I mean, have you checked everywhere? If the Coots duo is the first time that's ever been done. Here's the thing, dude. There may be something else. Just because we can't Google it. All this stuff that John and Alan Lomax did was accumulated 50, 60, 70, 80 years before the internet even came around. And, I mean, how much stuff is there files, is there boxes of material that has not yet made it to the internet? 
that's very likely. For sure, dude. So could there be recordings that we're unaware of that John Lomax, considering that he's the grandson, might be able to like find or help us find, or maybe he knows of some stuff that hasn't been made? Just because it's what I'm saying is just because material that 50 to 100 years old isn't searchable on Google, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. That's a good idea right there. I have John Novolomax's phone number. He was introduced to me by a good friend of mine at the Houston Chronicle. So I will follow that trail. I will reach out to him and see if his family knows of any serpent handling songs that were ever recorded but not released. Let me go do that. All right, I'll talk to you tomorrow, Farrell. Be good. You too. As the two go off to dig, Farrell contacts John Novolomax, an acquaintance and writer for publications such as Texas Monthly, Texas Highways, and the Houston Press. John is also the great-grandson of the famous folk music documentarian, John Avery Lomax. Farrell's question to him is, does John think his great-grandfather, John Avery, accompanied by his great-uncle, Alan Lomax, failed to record the music of serpent handlers because of who and what they were? As Farrell waits for a response, as if handed down straight from the clouds, Abe returns from an obsessive search with a downright unbelievable answer. All right, so we've got evidence now. I found this clip of this lady named Aunt Molly Jackson recorded talking to Alan Lomax about serpent handling. This is Aunt Molly Jackson again from Bell County, Kentucky. I'm going to finish for you Ragged, wearied blues. I want you to listen very closely to this now because it was written from my, it's from my heart and not from a pen. All the women in the coal camps are sitting with bowed down here. All the women in coal camps are sitting with bowed down here. And uh, basically telling them that it was a con job. It's something that's fake. This is fantastic work, Abe. Do you ever sleep? (laughs) (laughs) This clip you sent me looks like it's from the Library of Congress. The lady speaking is Aunt Molly Jackson. I got her right here on Wikipedia. She was a folk singer activist and looks like a big influence on the famous folk singer Woody Guthrie. So here she's going to be talking, it looks like, to Alan Lomax. This is from uh, 1939. He recorded this in New York. Well, what about me picking up a snake, Molly, in the hole in the church? If it doesn't sound clear because it's an old recording, Alan Lomax just said, well, what about this picking up a snake, Molly, in the Holiness Church? That's another uh, sleight of hand thing that's done by uh, nothing more than there's only two fangs in any poison snake's mouth that has the poison in it. And if you can catch the poisonous snake in the world and pull them fangs out, then you can pet that snake, you can handle that snake any way you want to, and that snake cannot uh, harm you. Sure enough, as fate would have it... Even back in the 1930s, this lady, she's basically telling Alan Lomax that there's only two things that's dangerous about a snake, and that's its fangs. If the snake was to bite you a dozen times, well, it couldn't hurt you because it has no poison, and that's what they do. They catch these snakes, and they pull these poison fangs out of their mouths, and then they work these miracles. 
and pretend that uh, they can take up deadly snakes and uh, that no deadly poison, they can't be poisoned or they can't uh, do nothing. <laughs> and uh, remove the fangs before they handle the serpents. And she knows this because she's seen it. That was her statement to Alan Lomax, was that basically it's just phony. To the holiness, all the holiness congregation, know that this is true law. So now he's asking her if the people in the congregations know that they're faking it. Oh, no, 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 no. There's a lot of people that have been deceived by them people. And when I talk to you about this holiness bunch of people, I'm talking to you about just what I have gone through with myself and what I have experienced to be the truth and the true fact. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes, sir. There you go, man. Aunt Molly Jackson. A lot like you. She's a folk singer, union organizer, super famous and beloved in Kentucky and other places. And she influenced Woody Guthrie. That's an authoritative voice against serpent handling, man. What do you think? I mean, awesome. Well, I mean, that's incredible. What an incredible story. You know, Woody Guthrie is a hero of mine. I mean, the prime example of using music for change, for the betterment of society. I mean, respect, right? But as concerning the topic at hand, she is just wrong. (laughs) And maybe she did actually know of a serpent handler that did that. That was a fraud and was a phony. But just because one person fraudulently present the handling of snakes doesn't mean that the entire movement has done so. And I mean, me and you and thousands of other people can attest to the fact that they do not do that. Of course, this was 1939, dude. So her one experience, that would have been more than 99% of the people on the face of the earth would have had because most people wasn't even familiar with it in that day and time. She has planted a seed in Alan Lomax's mind that it is, it's magic. It's smoke and mirrors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is the case. And, you know, maybe this all unfolds into something bigger. You know, here's the thing. I mean, we're kind of, as far as with Lomax, we're kind of, back at square one with the whole thing. It ain't that he wasn't aware. They were just never captured. So you have the whole question, why, you know? But here's the thing, dude. On down several months from now, we might find that he did a whole bunch of it and it's just buried somewhere in the Library of Congress. At some point, we're going to have to call his grandson and talk to him about all this. Don't you worry. I've been doing my part. I contacted him, John Novolomax. And I sent him a copy of the foreword of this podcast just so he would know what our thesis statement was. And he heard it, and he said that the subject was fascinating, which I thought was cool. And then this is what he had to say. I'm not sure that great-grandfather would have skipped out on recording the serpent handlers because he found them distasteful. I would really encourage you to involve my dad instead of me. He is way more into legacy stuff than I am. Or he might himself defer to his cousin, Alan's daughter, Anna. On a whim, Abe tries a search term that he has never attempted before. Alan Lomax plus serpent. Finally, after months of fruitless searches, Abe gets a hit. So after me and you talked, you know, I started trying to figure out, I wanted to like really try to dig on to see if Alan Lomax guy or John Lomax had ever anything to do with the snake handlers. And I found this one guy that had a, two minute and 56 second clip of uh, Jesus on my mind and it was on Reverb Nation. Well, I've got him on and I've got him on 
so I uh, joined this dilapidated website, Reverb Nation, <laughs> and I've sent him a message. I'm hoping that he'll respond. If he don't, I've also found his YouTube page. 70 subscribers on YouTube. He's the one that made the Homecoming 1992 video of Jolo. He made that. That's pretty cool. I've watched that. He has a great painting of uh, Dewey Chafin and a few others. I'm trying to find him like somewhere where he... Oh, great. Here's his, uh, here's his website, dude. AnthonyFayer.com. I'm going to reach out to this guy, dude, because... Oh, dude, perfect. Just got his Gmail account. I'm about to write him, dude. I'm just going to tell him that I'm uh, trying to make a document on serpent handling music. I'd want him on this podcast, man. For sure. Yeah, we need to get this guy in. And I mean, it's amazing. Uh, it's amazing that it, dude, this is on the internet, but it's really buried. I mean, I spent a couple of months just looking for this stuff, and the only way we found it was going Lomax Serpent Handler. We need to know his Lomax connection. I'm all writing, dude. I, if, if he writes back, I'll let you know. All right. Sounds good. Let me know. Okay, Abe, I just went and called Tony Fayer myself. I conducted a little interview here. I'm going to play it for you, and we can have a little discussion. Okay. Tony, how are you doing? It's so nice to meet you. Abe has told me so much about you. Hi, Farrell. I really appreciate you talking to me. Abe tells me you're up in New York. Is that right? That's correct. New York City. Yep. Where do you live? I live in the Lower East Side, just off the Bowery in Manhattan. I've been living in this same apartment since 1981, but I came to the city in 1979 to attend our college. I live two blocks south of CBGB's. <laughs> you know, that's kind of the mecca of punk rock in America. So that was very fortunate. Let's go now. Meet Anthony Fair. You can call him Tony. Artist, photographer, videographer, guitarist, and documentarian. Tony just happened to be near completion of an album of these very recordings when Abe discovered one of his songs on a music website called Reverb Nation. 30 years ago, Tony fell in with the storied serpent handlers of Jolo, West Virginia. It was the result of a passionate, tireless search conducted by Mr. Fair that illustrates how slowly trails were traversed back in the pre-internet days. If you can believe it, Tony's journey is linked directly to the Lomax family. When Tony was younger, before he'd ever heard of serpent handling, he had what he calls, quote, a father figure, a very busy man named Edmund Snow Carpenter, a World War II veteran and a noted anthropologist. Carpenter would also go on to co-author a film documenting six traditional African-American songs by Gullahs of St. Simon Island in Georgia, based on fieldwork by none other than Alan Lomax. Also directed by Bess Lomax Hawes, daughter of John Avery Lomax, one day, Mr. Carpenter told Tony there was such a thing in the world as serpent handlers. And so, Tony's curiosity ignited. He developed a deep desire to paint this elusive sect. It was a quest remarkably parallel to the origin of Abe's own quest, to paint the people of this faith. Tony first got his hands on a book called Snake Handling as a Cultural Phenomenon in the United States. And then, he sought out the 1977 film, The Jolo Serpent Handlers by a New York filmmaker named Karen Kramer. 
He looked up Miss Kramer in the phone book and called her, asking how he might be able to find the serpent handling people of Jolo, West Virginia. But she turned him away. She said the serpent handlers did not want any outsiders bothering them. And so to illustrate how driven he was to find these people, he borrowed a copy of Miss Kramer's film, a reel-to-reel -reel from the Donnell Library, part of the New York Public Library, and walked it across the street to make a copy of it. Then he took the film home and learned all the principal handlers' names. Finally, he decided he would toss a big ol' Hail Mary and mailed a letter to the town of Jolo, West Virginia, addressed to one of the most famous serpent handlers alive, Mr. Dewey Chafin. And I thought, well, I'll just write a letter to Dewey Chafin in Jolo, West Virginia, no street address, and just you know, take, take, my, take my chances and see if I get a response. So I just wrote this very simple letter and it had two boxes to check off. One box said, yes, you are welcome to come down. And the other said, no, you are not welcome to come down. And, uh, and he checked off the affirmative and included his phone number and his address. And so we started this correspondence through the mail for several months. And then as the weather was warming up, I decided, okay, let's go down and, and see what this is all about. So in June of 1989, I made my first trip and Dewey was really the principal member. And it turned out we'd have this lifelong friendship ever since. And he just was the most incredibly gracious, kind, gentle, loving man. And, uh, and it was fantastic. I assumed that they would hold me at arm's length and I wasn't really going to penetrate the threshold of um, making some genuine friendships. I really didn't know what to expect. And the friendships that I developed were just, I mean, I don't even know how to put words to it. It was just extraordinary. I would say I was surprised by the depth of the love that, that formed between some of the members and myself. It really surpassed anything I could have expected. And it was it was um, it was lovely. A friend loaned me a really nice state-of-the-art video camera, and this is going back to 1989. So the state-of-the-art camera for consumers back then was a Canon Hi8 digital camera. If it moves, shoot it with a Canon. We didn't have any external recording device to record the audio with. We just had the audio from the camera. So that's what made it through the whole process. And that's what I uploaded to YouTube. And I kept going back and I kept going back over the course of five years. The first night that I got there, which was a Friday on my first visit, the music was fairly subdued. Dewey was playing the guitar. Maybe there was a bass player and a drummer, but it was pretty subdued. Dewey's a fine guitar player, but there's another gentleman there. His name is Roy Lee Christian, who is like Chet Atkins. I mean, he's just unbelievable. Roy Lee Christian was the guy playing guitar on episode one. Abe, I think his name is. He's from Alabama. He said he just got fascinated with the serpent hand on pain. Tell you something better than that, you can get fascinated with Jesus. Roy Lee Christian, who they call Booty. In fact, I saw him the first time I ever went to uh, Chris Walford's church. Great guitar player for Jolo is playing at Chris Walford's church from the very first sound bites from episode one of this series. Yeah, that's the same guy, man. He's still playing the guitar. 
What do you think of Tony's comparison that he's like Chet Atkins? He's absolutely right. If Booty Christian ever wanted to go on the road with a folk singer, all he's got to do is just ask me to go. <laughs> he's got the job. He's unbelievable. If you think about guitar playing and the style that he's doing it in, I mean, I've always been a fan of guitar players, you know what I mean? I was probably like 15 or 16 years old, and that Monterey Pop Festival video came on VH1 or something. And seeing Jimi Hendrix play and then like set his guitar on fire and then straddle it while the flames were coming up, and I thought that was the coolest. Dude, Jimi Hendrix ain't got nothing on Booty Christian. <laughs> Playing up there with people drinking strict nine, and they're not setting their guitars on fire, they're setting their faces on fire. It just makes the Monterey Pop Festival look kind of uh, childish. And when he's playing, the energy level and the quality of the music is risen to a, a, an incredibly high bar. So the music was pretty subdued the first night I got there. Roy would usually come on Saturdays and then Sunday afternoons. So the following night, Saturday, I heard the full bang and it was just incredible. You know, it was immediately apparent to me that not only was there an enormous amount of drama taking place in the actual handling of the snakes and the sort of spectacle of that, but then it's also elevated by this incredible music that was just so high energy and so fast-paced and pulsating and everything. It was pretty apparent that it was unique and it was something that could potentially be marketed. I mean, they're really poor people and maybe there was a way to bring some income to them through their music. I'll state right here that when I was growing up, there was no religious influence in my upbringing. Both my parents were atheists. My dad was a Holocaust survivor, so that might explain his reluctance to embrace religion. So I didn't really have any of that kind of upbringing, and I didn't really know that much about religion, really. You know, there was like a 30-year gap between any interest, and not just an interest in the music, but interest in the subject and the paintings and the photographs. And I mean, there was a whole wealth of material that I came back from those research trips with, a lot of material. I took over 3,000 photographs, I think, at least 20 hours of videotape, and I did five years worth of paintings. There's probably 30 paintings. And it all just ended up sitting on a bookshelf or being put in storage. And to this day, I've never shown the paintings. The New York art world is a pretty fickle beast. And the gallery that I had at the time, they were just uncomfortable with the whole thing. I don't know why, but they were just, they just didn't respond that enthusiastically. They didn't, either they didn't think that their collector base would be interested and want to purchase it, or they were just scared of it. I don't know. I scoped him out on his website and kind of got a feel for who he was. And after I scoped him out on his website, it made perfect sense to me, the fact that this would be the guy that has the recordings. Because you can look at his website and tell, you know, he's interested in some kind of one-off subcultures and stuff like that. Then you see his art, and you know that he's a great artist. And I mean, really, we're really similar. And my initial email to him was, man, we've got a lot in common. 
I mean, we're really the same guy. We're just from different areas and different generations. You know what I mean? I'm thoroughly excited. This record, I mean, this will be the most anticipated album that I've, I mean, since maybe in utero. <laughs> since in utero, I guess this is probably the most anticipated release that I've had in my entire life. Because, <laughs> you know? uh, I mean, I'm just stoked that this is something that's going to exist. It's going to be on vinyl. I'm going to be able to put it on my sound system, and I'm going to be able to fill my house with it. And I'll be able to close my eyes and just feel like, you know, you, you're there. So you're telling me you went and did another internet search. You found a guy who's been sitting on material for 30 years. He just happens to be releasing an album this coming May, a vinyl of Serpent Handling Songs, in partnership with a record company in the UK of all places. Arguably the most legendary musical Serpent Handling Church, Jolo, West Virginia. He did what you have set out to do here, and that is make a professional, full congregational recording. Are you just completely heartbroken that you're not the pioneer of this? I, there is jealousy. I'm jealous that I wasn't alive and doing what I'm doing now in the late 80s, for sure. But uh, other than that, uh, there is no jealousy or anything as far as, you know, people use terms like beating you to the market. I mean, well, number one, the market for serpent handling songs, that's probably one of the smallest markets that you could even imagine. So it's not like you're going to beat us to this great pot of gold, you know. But even if it was so, I'm just thrilled that it exists because um, my motivation in all of this is not financial. And it's not to make money or for anything like that. It's to document this powerful art form. So the fact that somebody did this in a way that I could not due to the nature of time... Well, I'm stoked that they exist, man. I can't wait. Uh, you know, I told Tony I'm, I'm going to be the first in line to buy that record. I'll probably buy three or four copies <laughs> and give one to Cody and, you know, maybe give one to Jimmy. Hang on a second. Let me calculate that up real quick. So that's one for you, one for Jimmy, one for Cody. Do do I not get one? You got to get in line yourself, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving one to Cody and Jimmy and I'm keeping two copies and I plan on wearing out one and I'm going to keep the other one sealed. You're a visual artist, Abe. What's your reaction to the fact that Tony Fayer made 30 paintings? He had one art piece that was hanging at the front of the church in Jolo. You just recently dug up a picture of Jamie Coots himself preaching in front of that very piece. I mean, how full circle can this thing get? The preacher you met when you were trying to proselytize Middlesboro, Kentucky, who showed you his finger that had rotted off because of a rattlesnake that sent you on this whole journey back in 2006. Here's a picture of him preaching in front of a piece by Tony Fair, who you just happened to find on Reverb Nation of all places. Does it surprise you that at the end of this journey that has spawned all of this art between you and Tony Fair, that the New York art world would find it too scandalous maybe? Well, first, Farrell, uh, if you're talking about the art scene in New York City, you're probably asking the last guy in the world that you should ask about something like that. I know nothing about New York City's art world or New York City in general. I've never even been there. New York City, you know, somebody can take a piece of their own excrement and make a Virgin Mary out of it, and they call that fine art. That's not what this is, I don't think. I mean, this is a sacred art. What he captured was sacred music. And uh, I don't think anybody ever thought the guy smearing around on a canvas that looked like Jesus was sacred. It was like anti-sacred. 
And so while the art world may embrace the anti-sacred, I'm not surprised that they did not embrace this form of sacred art. Same thing with this podcast and these albums. It's going to rub some people wrong, and I know it. And people that feel threatened by the sacred, they ain't going to dig it. There's definitely some people that are like that in this world. Let's talk about Alan Lomax for a moment. Did you ever meet him? Through that anthropologist friend of mine I mentioned earlier, he was really good friends with Alan. So when I was a little kid, Alan was always around. And Alan would come over with an acoustic guitar and he would sing these folk songs. And he had a terrible voice (laughs) and he wasn't a particularly good guitar player. So we would usually, us kids would just leave the room. (laughs) We had no idea, you know, music ethnicology and what he and his father had contributed to really establishing the roots of American blues and folk music. I mean, none of that, you know, I didn't learn of that until much later. I had sent him some samples of what I had recorded because it was right up his alley. And he responded and said, oh, this is really great. I'd love to come with you. It's outstanding. And let's release it through the Smithsonian's label. And I said, well, that's really exciting. (laughs) After time his health was starting to deteriorate he was already roughly 80 years of age and so he had to bow out he couldn't come with me but he loaned me a dat machine a digital audio tape machine and i made some recordings with it but the church had experienced a break-in and a lot of their equipment had been stolen and what it was replaced with wasn't as good as what they had had when i was recording earlier and the sound wasn't that good and and the mix wasn't as good so the recordings that made it through to what i hope will be a release are those that came off of this digital camera you go to him and you say there's this great music and uh he's enthusiastic about it he gives you the dat machine to use then you go record it what happens after that He worked out of Hunter College here in New York. He had an office there, and he worked with a small team of audio engineers, and they took the tapes, they did some edits, and then Alan's health started to really rapidly deteriorate, and he passed away. So his daughter, Anne, I think her name is, she took over, and nothing really happened with the recordings. So you know, Abe, I contacted John Nova Lomax, and he sent me to his dad in Nashville, John Lomax III, and I told him we were on a quest to document music, and he has written me back. And just as John Nova Lomax presumed he might, he referred us to Anna Lomax Wood, which is Alan's daughter, and uh, he said that she might be able to help with serpent handling music in their collection that might never have been released before. So he sent my email. I'm not sure if I can even get an audience with her, but I'm going to try. If those existed and they're not publicly available, maybe there were some other ones that existed that are not publicly available. Also tell her, say, look, we've been through the archives that are publicly available online. We were hoping that you might have access to recordings that are not uploaded to any type of public database, and then that's where you throw in Anthony Fayer. We have found a guy who worked with your father, and we have recordings, and we know that there are dat tapes from which these recordings came. We have the cassettes that should be in your archives, or at least put in your archives back in the early 90s. And we were thinking... If those existed and they're not publicly available, maybe there were some other ones that existed that are not publicly available. So, Tony, what happened to those DAT tapes that you handed back over to Alan Lomax when you gave him back his machine? 
I made a few inquiries to see if it was ever going to find its way onto the Folkways label, and nothing was ever really concrete. So I just let it go, and that was that. So you have the recordings from that performance? I have them. And that's what the record's going to be? No. No, the record is the best performances and the best quality recording came from that digital camera that I had made mention of earlier. If it moves, shoot it with a camera. Unbelievable. The DAT recordings weren't that great because their equipment had been stolen. The guitar player was too loud. He was drowning out the singer. And there were some other issues. And I couldn't really dictate to them to model the sound to my liking because they just do what they do. And they, they didn't want to have anyone interfering with the, with the sound. So I couldn't ask the guitar player to turn down or model the engineering to any real degree. And I couldn't isolate the instruments because I didn't have the capability or the equipment at the time to do that. So I was just left with the room sound and it wasn't that good. So, you know, whatever is released will have come from that 1992 recording of the homecoming. That is so awesome. I totally get it now. You tried to tell me a few minutes ago that the record came from that Canon video camera. I guess my brain just could not fathom how an album can sound as good as yours that was recorded on an early 90s handheld recorder. That is remarkable. Now, Tony, are you done with that chapter of your life or are you interested in going back to witnessing some of these services again? As far as I was concerned, I was done with that. I was done with it a long time ago. The, the principal members whom I was so close to, unfortunately, had all passed away, and I lost all contact with the parishioners of that church. That was a chapter that was kind of over and done with. But then Abe contacted me last week, and that was really the first person who really made a personal gesture and asked me if I'd like to go and visit the church that he took you to, which is the church in, in Kentucky. And I said, you know, that sounds like a a really worthwhile, fun thing to do. Yeah, I might take him up on his offer. So, Abe, it looks like we have a teammate. He told me that you had asked him if you could get your hands on those DAT tapes to see what was on them. He says to tell you he's putting them in the mail. Let me ask you this question, Abe. Was there a joke element to making these? um, When you first realized, man, I can paint these people, was it tongue-in-cheek when you first came to me and said you were doing this book of paintings? It wasn't so much a joke. I'm not that bad of a dude. Like, it wasn't a lampoon. It was not my attempt at a lampoon. Looking at it now... Would it have been a lampoon? Absolutely. And the reason that that book that I made back at the beginning of the pandemic, before I ever met any of these serpent handlers, would have been a lampoon is because I was going off material, some of which was used to lampoon them. Name one. Give us an example. Oh, well, I mean, you say name it. I say name me one that isn't a lampoon. I mean, I don't look at the stuff like Ralph Hood and Paul Williamson or... uh, Thomas Burton wrote his lampoons. But, um, you know, a lot of the other stories that you get online are lampoons. Cody has decided that he is going to take on the role of snake handler at the same church that his father worked at because that's just the right way to do things. 
Now, Cody says the following, I don't know if he would come back out of his grave and slap me clean across the face. That's how much he believed in it. So, Cody, he can't slap you because he's dead because he was wrong. They get away with it because the only thing they tell you about Cody Coos is that he's a serpent handler and his dad died of it. He's lost his dad. You hear him talking about how he wishes he could go snake hunting with his father. You didn't know anything about him but that. You didn't know we watched his dad die in his arms in an act of faith. You know, you didn't know all the many struggles that the dude has gone through. Becoming a pastor when he was 21 years old at a church he didn't even want to pastor because he had felt family and church pressure. Put the freaking snake down before he kills you too. It's been seven days since the star of Snake Salvation, Jamie Coots, was killed by a rattlesnake. But don't worry, we believe in miracles. He has come back again. So when you make a piece of journalism like that, I immediately know that you know absolutely nothing about the subject that's at hand. All you know is a couple of outrageous facts, and you're really interested in getting clicks on your videos. And so you go out and you destroy people, you know, for a click or whatever. But if you truly knew them, then you would have no interest in doing that, you know? Just like us, you know? We, we have no interest in hurting anybody because we know them, dude. They're just, they're good people. They're good people, dude. Why would you want to destroy somebody like that? I think it's important that we tell the audience as well, Farrell, that as far as this podcast thing goes, this podcast was never part of the whole journey. The journey started with a music capturing quest. I can vouch for that. When I first learned you were visiting serpent handling churches, I thought it was very interesting, but... I said to myself, serpent handling, it's been covered for 50 years. It is a visual thing. It is not an audio thing. It's not made for podcasts, picking up snakes. Boy, was I wrong. You know, I've listened back to this podcast, and, and frankly, I'm just horrified. Why? I'm horrified at my own words and the way that I viewed what I now consider to be uh, sacred. I think all acts of faith like that are sacred in a sense long as they don't bring harm to anyone else. The ones that are done out of faith. I mean, I've seen different types of serpent handling, buddy. I've seen lots of serpent handling. I've seen some that didn't appear to be very sacred at all. It seemed to be almost obligatory. But then I've seen some of it that appeared to be the power of God. It almost appeared to be miraculous. And I know the people who were doing it. I know them like intimately as friends. And I know that they performed that act in great faith. So regardless of what you or me or anybody else thinks about the act, in their heart, their hearts were filled with faith, believing that it was a sign of the gospel. These signs shall follow them that believe. You can call it what you want to. You know, my son was sick last week. He woke up and he was covered with welts. He had an allergic reaction to something or another. Well... You know, I called my mom and my dad, and I texted Cody and Andrew. I pray for my son. It's like I had become so disenchanted with church. I love, I love, uh, I love them, and I'm certain that they love me as well. And I haven't had that type of experience in a church in over a decade. My former people called me apostate. The day that I left was the day that they quit loving me. So it was never love. You know, a bunch of the serpent handlers, I, I feel like they love me regardless of all that. It wasn't what I set out to do, Farron. I didn't set out to fall in love with serpent handlers and the faith. That wasn't really what I set out to do, but it was, um, it was a consequence of it. So here we are all the way back at the beginning 
a journey that started with music and led to an art book that you made where you painted all of the serpent handling personalities you had read about in books and online, and you wrote their stories. And now, after all of your experiences, you're throwing the book away, and you're starting over, and you're making a new one over the course of next year. I'm redoing the book. So there's portraits and there's stories to go with each portrait. Well, the stories I wrote were based on stuff I had gleaned from numerous other source materials. And some of the stories are okay because uh, they were factual. Some of the stories I wrote were part factual, part error that were based on erroneous sources. I have firsthand accounts now. So I'm going to scrap most of the stories that I wrote and some of the portraits that I painted. I'm going to make 20 more portraits and 20 more stories. You know, I'm going to use information that I've gotten directly from serpent handlers as opposed to just getting information from various uh, journalists and things. I've got a show at the Alabama Contemporary Arts Center, and my intention is, is to release the book in conjunction with that show where I will show all 40 of those paintings and those stories that I wrote will be displayed beside them. It's going to be the largest museum show that I've ever put together. But man, I've got my work cut out for me. This is a long time away, but as of now, I'd like to bring some of the serpent handlers down for it and have them play music at the opening. As Abe and Farrell continued to make plans, they suddenly realized Andrew Hamblin never responded to Abe's last message on Facebook Messenger. It prompts Abe to check in on Andrew's Facebook page. And Abe and Farrell quickly discover that the page has gone offline. Oh, David, David, a shepherd boy, he killed Goliath and shouted for joy. Little David, play on your harp, hallelujah, hallelujah. Little David, play on your harp, hallelujah. So they try a Google search on Andrew. And to their dismay, an article from that day pops up top line, a publication called the Christian Post. The lead photograph features Andrew and his wife Taylor dancing across the stage, their eyes closed in an expression of bliss at Free Pentecostal House of Prayer. They are hand in hand and somehow both floating off the floor, all four feet cleanly above the plywood stage as if the two were levitating above it. The headline reads, Pentecostal snake handlers now calling on Jesus and doctors after high-profile death. When the evil spirit come upon Saul, little David play and the power will fall. Little David play on your harp, hallelujah, hallelujah. Little David play on your harp, hallelujah. How do they get away with this, you know? Jamie Coots, turns out, who died seven years ago, is the high-profile death the article is referring to. The very top photograph on that Christian Post article was a church service that, that I was sitting at. I was there when that whole thing happened. And that photograph was then posted on Andrew and Taylor's Facebook page talking about what a great time, a great service they had. And then somebody just took it off the uh, Facebook page and put it as the top picture on the Christian post in their slanderous article. Our child of God, he was sit apart. He was a man after God's own heart. Little David, play on your heart. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Little David, play on your heart. Hallelujah. 
With a little more digging, Abe and Farrell realized that this article was most likely published to ride the wake of a more sprawling National Geographic feature from three days before. Similarly titled, Appalachian Snake Handlers Put Faith in God and Increasingly Doctors. With a creeping stone and a homemade sling, he went to battle with the Philistine. Little David, play on your harp, hallelujah, hallelujah. Little David, play on your harp, hallelujah. And then Andrew discontinued his Facebook page. After he shut down his Facebook page, our conversation got shut down as well. National Geographic and Christian Post just killed this whole endeavor, which if you think about the whole purpose of what, you know, National Geographic is, what the entity is and what it was all about, or at least what it was historically all about. I mean, it would go against, you know, all the uh, ideals of such a magazine. Oh, I believe in the Bible side I'm taking up serpent and drank straight night. Little David, play on your heart. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Little David, play on your heart. Basically, what they did is they actually hindered the collection of these songs that have never been documented from this people group, religious group, in favor of publishing some article that was just written by someone who does not have a good rapport with many of the serpent handlers. And I know this. You know, I know for a fact she does not have a good rapport with many of the serpent handlers that she quoted. So, isn't that funny? And I ain't blaming, I'm not casting stones and I ain't pointing fingers because that ain't what I'm in the business of doing. But, uh, you know, I ain't afraid to call out when I see it. And that whole thing was bull We'll take up serpent and go to jail. Won't need nobody to go my bail. Little David, play on your heart. would have it. Abe was not alone when he attended the Hamblin service that produced that picture of the couple levitating, the one that appeared in the Christian Post. This service happened to be the very one that Farrell attended with Abe, the infamous meeting that started it all when Abe got his hands all tied up with a Gibson guitar strap. Can you, can you pull your hands apart? Hey, why can't you pull your hands apart? I'm tied them up. What was so unique about that service, especially paired with the fact that a photograph of the service made its way into the Christian post that appeared under a headline that had so much to say about the current behaviors of serpent handlers? Well, only that, on that particular night, when the photograph was taken, there were absolutely no serpents at all. Oh, perfect love, it'll cast out fear. Oh, bring them serpents on over here. Little David, play on your heart, hallelujah, hallelujah. Little David, play on your heart, hallelujah. In four hours of a blistering, recorder-clipping worship service. Not one single serpent was handled in that entire service. In fact, we went there not even knowing that they handled serpents. And we left there not knowing if they handled serpents or not there. Well, David, David, he was Israel's king. He could play the harp, and the boy could sing. Little David, play on your harp, hallelujah, hallelujah. 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 Little David,
think it's more than coincidental. There's been too many coincidences in this whole thing for me not to believe in Providence at this point. Again, I know that that probably just hair lips some people, but you know, I guess I'm just that stupid. Oh, one of these days, and it won't be long, you'll look for me, oh, but I'll be gone. A little David play on your heart, hallelujah, hallelujah. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Next week on the season finale of Alabama Astronaut. You know, it's the same thing that happened on the Jerry Springer show. Whenever he goes, well, if you believe this, why don't you just go jump in front of a train? I pick up my phone and he said, hello, this is Andrew Hamblin. What'd they think, Mr. Covington, when Salvation on Sand Mountain came out? I went back after the book came out and Brother Carl told me, he said, Brother Dennis, the first time I read it, I hated it. Second time I read it and I thought, meh, it's not so bad. And he said, then third time I read it, I decided, yeah, this is good. This is good. Students of anthropology in a hundred years could be listening to these recordings going, my God. You know what I'm saying? Everything else we ever did probably be forgotten. <laughs> if you can come up here knowing what to do and then you show me what to do and you teach me what to do, I can go back to that church. I've been able to, instead of looking broadly at what is likely the downfall of this country and this culture, I've been able to just look at this little tiny community of people that exercise great faith. It's been the one most joyous pursuit of my entire life. And one of my biggest fears now is that whatever comes after this won't be near as joyous and exhilarating as this. At the time of this episode's production, Tony Fair's album, titled They Call Us Holy Rollers, is on the verge of release. A UK record label named Idle Cherub Records is producing a run of them, a work of art in itself. It's vinyl and features 15 never-before-heard songs from the early 90s in Jolo, West Virginia. Of course, the first five copies will not be available to you. Those four will go to Abe and the fifth to Farrell. But be sure to get yours by contacting Idle Cherub Records at btinternet.com. Or you can just visit our website, alabamaastronaut.com. There we will make sure to have a link straight to the album, as well as Tony's website. If you want to find Tony directly and perhaps see those newly unveiled paintings, the ones that have emerged after 30 years of storage, after the New York art scene, that fickle beast, passed on them, as well as photographs and documentation of other subcultures he's covered, such as small-town stock car races called Enduros, you can find all of this and more by visiting anthonyfair.com. That's A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-F-E-Y-E-R. Com. Also, the two songs performed during the Tony Fair sequence were called Writing on Benzedrine and Theme for Crucifixion, two songs from Tony's band, Cardboard, and that's Tony on guitar. 
Make sure you visit alabamaastronaut.com to unlock bonus episodes. There's a killer ancillary episode for this installment covering the backstory of Tony Fair. You won't want to miss it. For more on his fascinating journey, visit alabamaastronaut.com. That's Dave Garrett from the Psych Bees on some of the instrumentals. And the rest was played by Our Man Abe. Subscribe to this podcast. Keep up with all our goings on. We'll see you next week.